<laughs> Let me hear. Say it one more time. You're listening to Failure. Failure. Failure 101. Failure. Failure. Wait. Fail your. Fail your. Failure. 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 I can't say that word. Right. You're listening to Paul Elmore. Perfect. Why don't we uh, pray and get started if we could, ladies and gentlemen. Father, let our ears and our hearts be open and receptive to being able to see ourselves as you see us tonight, Lord. Help the lies that we've believed. Let the falsehoods and the deception that we feed to ourselves be melted away so that we can see clearly, we can see purely, and we can be seen and be known in the ways that you know us and see us. Above all else, Lord, may you receive glory and honor and praise tonight because of our time together. And in your holy name, amen. These cracks in our armor, the pre-existing negative beliefs that we hold, really can hold on to us, can't they? How many of you have carried those around? Rhetorical question, you don't have to raise your hand, but you've um, carried those around <laughs> since as long as you can remember. They've just been present, they've just been there. And again, the idea is, where did this come from? If, if you want a recap of that, that's where we talked a little bit about last week, where some of these pre-existing negative beliefs come from within the shame and, and guilt kind of um, dilemma that we find ourselves. Shame is what? A, it is, say it again, about yourself at your core, who you are. Guilt is about something you've done, about your action. That's why I want all of you to feel more guilty because your humanity predisposes you to not doing things perfectly between now and the time you die. So I want you to be feeling appropriately for those things. Feel sorrow, feel sadness over the events, over the behavior. But I want you to see yourself as Christ sees you, as God sees you, which is valuable and precious and loving and all these other things that scripture so clearly describes. That's last week. For those who missed out on the previous weeks or want to just recap again, failure101.org, you can go on there and usually by Thursday morning, um, it'll tonight's will be up there by probably Wednesday morning. So you can just hit play and listen to those. Or if you go to iTunes and do a search under Paul Elmore, um, a podcast will show up with these exact same things as well. So you can um, subscribe to that and download it and listen to it as you're biking or things like that. So, all right. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking about risk around control and about trust. Now you might be saying, what in the world does this have to do with failure? Let me just lay it out there so you know kind of where we're going and how this plays out. First off, um, tonight, I'm afraid to try new things. That's what it typically sounds like is, is I don't want to step out. I don't want to try new things. Um, I don't like risk. I like being in control and it's hard to trust either myself or other people. 
So tonight we're going to talk about control and all of those apparently. Uh, when we or others make mistakes, we often believe that control will keep us safe in the future. When we make a mistake or other people make a mistake, it's like, okay, that's it. I'm not taking my hands off the wheel anymore. I got to steer this ship. I got to be in control. And that can, the thinking can be understandable. The execution can oftentimes become problematic because control, the way we try to obtain it, oftentimes is illusionary and we don't have as much control as we wish we did. Risk is uh, how to move forward knowing you might get hurt. For those in the room who've been hurt before, <coughs> risking is like saying I've been hit in the head with a baseball bat and you want me to go stand at home plate with people swinging bats? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why in the world would I want to do that? So we're going to talk about risk. Healthy risk, good risk, bad risk, what some of those things are. Trust, how to live a life based on vulnerability and not fear. Trust is very, very nice to have if you can get comfortable with it. <laughs> how about that for a completely empty statement? And then finally, how to live with healthy risk. All right. Uh, how about control? Section one, control. In my practice, as I sit with lots and lots of people who have been wounded, who have been hurt, we, uh, I've kind of come to a conclusion that there are two primary fears which I think are probably the most overwhelming for us and that we try to avoid at all possible in, in any way we can. Number one is ambiguity. I think that we would like to know just what's happening and if we don't know what's happening, we don't know, you know, is he going to stay? Is he not going to stay? Am I going to get fired? Am I not going to get fired? Is, is what's going to happen? What's going to go on next? All this, this ambiguity place creates a lot of fear, a lot of tension, a lot of, a lot of um, uh, discontent within us. So ambiguity, um, within my practice, I try to help my clients as much as possible remove themselves from an ambiguous place. That's kind of that paralyzed by fear and I can't move and I don't know what to do. I try to help them at least take a step and then we, we can work with, that, with whatever comes up. The other one, the other emotion, the other experience which I think as humans we despise is helplessness. Short time ago, huh, while I was waiting for John Gon, um, who was here on week one, on a Friday morning, I was flipping through the paper at the coffee shop that we meet at, and I found this picture. Uh, it's hard to see. Is there lights in here at all? Do there are lights over there. Thank you. That's really helpful. Um, for those who have a hard time seeing this, maybe the lights, there we go. Perfect. Um, this is a situation um, in India during some of the bombings that were happening there. And if you look carefully, it looks like there's about a dozen motorcycles on fire after this bombing had happened. And if you notice, this man here is trying to put out the fire with what looks like a can of Ready Whip um, <laughs> from about 60 feet away or so. How effective is he? If you look, you can actually see kind of the spray here is not quite making it. We seek control because we don't like being helpless. If these are his motorcycles or, you know, he wants to do something to help, 
It's very difficult to simply put your hands in your pockets and say, the motorcycles are lost. There's nothing to do. Instead, we do crazy things like, you know, trying to shoot a little, little tiny can of, you know, fire extinguisher towards 12 burning motorcycles. Doesn't quite make sense, does it? It's the scene in the movie that we see over and over and over again where the person has died, they've drowned or whatever it is, and the medic's there and they're pounding on the chest and pounding and pounding and pounding and they're just beating on the guy and the other medic says, you know, it's time to stop, it's time to, it's time to be done. And he, you know, he sighs and all those things. No, I'm not going to give up. And he goes back and beating and beating and miraculously the story because he comes back to life. And, you know, that's the nice niceties of Hollywood and cinema and all those things. We hate being helpless. And especially if we've made a mistake or someone else has made a mistake and it's left us with some sort of pain or some sort of um, problem, we can't sit around and do nothing. So what do we do? What do we do to um, take care of this helplessness? A quote here that says, yep, there's a human tendency to accept personal blame for suffering. People often would rather feel guilty than helpless. Mm -hmm. Using guilty, different term than we've been using it. But the idea behind it is, if I can somehow take personal blame for the suffering of others, people hurting, people dying, if somehow it is my fault, I have control over this, then what? somehow I should be able to make it stop, right? And so we would assume what I will call unhealthy responsibility so that we don't feel helpless. We need to have some sense of control. And again, the motivation is okay. The execution tends to bring along extra problems, extra consequences that can lead to us living a life of entrapment because we should be responsible. We feel like we should be able to fix all of this. And I don't want you guys to live that life anymore. I want you to take responsibility for the things that you actually can control and the things that you can't control. I want you to learn how to let go and let either other people be responsible for their actions or let circumstances play out as they're going to play out. There's freedom in that. And learning that healthy balance is um, kind of what we're talking about here. Quick question, Jimmy. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. That would, that would work real well. There are lots and lots of things that we uh, tend to try to control. Give me some ideas of what we try to control. <laughs> things we try to control. What was that, Judy? Other people. Other people. All right. How about we, um, what kind of things about people? I'll give you the first one here. Their belief <laughs> systems, okay? If you could answer the questions in the order I have the PowerPoint, that makes us work a little smoother, by the way. Okay. <laughs> Shoot. All right. I'm working on that. See? We're all working on this. Um, people's beliefs. I have a client right now. Actually, I have a couple who are working through some marital issues, and she is really intent on making her husband believe certain things. He has to believe the same way that I believe. And she's spending an awful lot of energy uh, trying to make that happen um, to a point of frustrating both of them. So trying to get that isn't kind of working out so well for her. We try to um, control people's behaviors. 
no one in the room probably has that problem at all. We want, you know, this other person has to behave this certain way. This person, if they don't do this, then insert bad thing here. We try to control people's behaviors. We try to control people's emotions. How about that? I just don't want them to feel bad. So I'm not going to say anything. I'll just kind of be quiet. Or I'll just be inconvenienced. Or I'll just be disappointed one more time instead of sharing. Because that might make someone feel bad. So we try to control people's emotions. And we try to control circumstances. Please, Lord, don't make it rain. Or you do the rain dance. Or i got to get my car out of the parking lot in such and such time. And all those sort of things. Bad news. Again, we'll just get it out of the way right now. <laughs> if you work on any of those, you're spending your limited time and energy on things that you really don't have. It's an illusion if you are trying to change some of those things. We can't change any of those things. We can ask for, we can hope, we can encourage, and if th some of those things do change, that's nice for us, but usually people change their beliefs because they decide to change their beliefs, not because we've somehow made them. Or we change their, their feelings change because they come into some new understanding or um, recollection of circumstances, things like that. So we can't change a whole lot of those things. People get to choose that for themselves. Let's talk about the two sorts of um, con uh, personalities that there are. There are controlling people. These are the people that, um, I'm going to phrase it here, they try to keep themselves safe through abrasive, confrontational power struggles. I apologize now, but the best way to understand this is the control freak. So people who just, you know them. They are the abrasive, your way is never the right way, their way is always the right way, this kind of controlling person, this kind of personality. I want to give you a perspective shift, if I can, on kind of what motivates them. A controlling person, a control freak, uh, are, is attempting to control or deal with or cope with some level of um, fear. It's a fear regulation tool. They are afraid um, that they are going to be helpless or impotent or, or out of control in some way. And so it is, it is an active way to keep themselves safe. If you can see the control freak, the controlling person as a scared person, it might give us a whole different perspective on kind of how to relate to them. Because, well, let's just admit it, a, a control freak, someone who is that abrasive, that difficult to work with, um, it's sometimes hard to be in the same room with for more than 10 minutes, right? It's just like, I'm exhausted, I'm tired. Let's talk about everyone else out there for a minute because we'll assume that there's none of these people in the room, all right? Those people out there who tend to be controlling, control freaks, the abrasive, power-hungry kind of folks, um, Relinquishing control is tantamount to being victimized again. They just don't know how to regulate that discomfort within them. And so instead of being in a vulnerable place, they say, I will never be vulnerable again, and I have to control me, and I have to control 
you and I got to control the circumstances and I got to control your feelings and I got to control the person who's in the next zip code and I got to control all of this because if all of that lines up, then I will be safe. How exhausting does that sound? Can you imagine trying to just orchestrate, keep all those balls in the air as you're juggling? That is, that is paralyzing how difficult that can be. When a control freak cannot control, they go through a series of rapid phases. First, they become angry and agitated. So again, for those who know any control freaks, um, if they can't control something, you see that anger, you see that, that frustration, you see that, um, that agitation. Then they become panicky and apprehensive. The fear turns into panic and they are a little bit more hesitant. Um, then they become agitated and threatening again. Again, these are control freaks. And then finally, when all of their controlling doesn't work, oftentimes they lapse into depression and despair. That would be um, bipolar, that would be manic depressive, that would be all these things where they have all this energy, 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 and when they can't control their situation, they can't control their circumstances, they, they crash, they turn, go into kind of a, um, that bipolar state. <sighs> Again, that is an exhausting way, exhausting way to go through life. And we can look on those folks with compassion, with kindness, rather than with disdain, um, with more aggression. They have a little bit of work to do to be able to receive some of that, to be able to hear that. Their cracks in their armor are huge and they are afraid that any weakness, any imperfection is going to confirm all sorts of these underlying beliefs. So if you are associated with or know any of those people, view them as Christ views them. Be kind. Be compassionate. Be safe. Really, be safe. It's okay to do that. Um, but still approach it with um, compassion. It's the wounded animal who's stuck in a trap. Is it wise to take that bobcat and go up and say, I'm just trying to help you and give it a big snuggly hug? Is that going to work out well for you? It just <laughs> tends not to. You have to approach with gloves. You have to approach with you know, the rope on the pole. And the intention is to help still, but you don't put yourself in a compromising situation. You find that balance. Everyone tracking? Fantastic. Anyone know the other kind of controlling people? This is the one that we tend to know the best. You're nodding your head. You want to give it a shot? Who would be the other controlling people? Passive aggressive. Oh, see, that's very good. Um, passive aggressive people. Um, I think even the word aggressive in there means that they're doing this in a, in a different sort of way. Um, actually, they might fall into both categories. Here's the other people. Sorry. Here's the dilemma that comes up with people pleasers. People pleasing is a little bit more warm fuzzy and we actually get rewarded for being people pleasers. They are such a servant. They just give and give and give. They are, they are always there. They're reliable. We can count on them. We can always ask them and they will always take care. You know, they'll always be there for us. People pleasing in all reality is all about manipulating other people's feelings. Isn't that a terrible thing to say? I'm not even sure I'm allowed to say that in a church because again, I think there's an awful lot of people pleasers within Christendom because it gets rewarded a lot. 
People-pleasing at its heart is an attempt to control other people's experiences and emotions. The feeling, um, I just don't want them to feel bad, can actually be rephrased as, I actually can't let them feel whatever they're feeling. I have to stop that. i got to control that. They can't handle their feelings, and so I have to be good enough, reliable enough, all of those things. Uh, I don't want to disappoint them is really stated, I can't handle being a disappointment because that might confirm that negative belief that we have. And so I'm going to do anything else I can to make sure that someone else isn't disappointed because they probably can't handle it at all. Um, I want them to know I'm trustworthy and capable. Again, in and of itself, that's not a bad, that's not a bad desire. But it really is, you know, I need your approval. If you don't like me, if you think that I am un, untrustworthy or flaky, I somehow can't make it if you don't like me. So I got to control what you think, feel, believe about me. It's about manipulating. And it tends to backfire. I have recurring back problems um, that have been present for several years now. And... Did I mention that this class comes out of a lot of personal work I've been doing around my own failure stuff? So most of these stories, uh, I apologize, but I can resonate really, really well with. Um, my back at times will put me flat in bed for a week or two. I literally just can't move. It hurts so bad. And even still today, as I'm working through my story, as I'm trying to find the balance in, in healthy living, um, but earlier in my marriage, when this would happen, my wife would say, honey, stay in bed. I'll take care of you. We have four kids. And I mentioned that we have four kids. And at that time, they were little kids. The most inconvenient things on the planet are small, small children. They always need things. They always want things. And it's like, come on, give me a break. So my wife would now be stuck taking care of all of the kids and all of the house and everything else while I'm just laying in bed being lazy. That's what I was thinking. That's what's going over in my mind. That's the negative belief that's confirmed when I am incapable. I am lazy. So the loving, kind, generous, compassionate, self-sacrificing self servant that I am of a husband would get up and hobble to the kitchen, you know, hanging on the walls and chairs, and I would start trying to do the dishes because I had to help out. Laying in bed, the discomfort of thinking that my wife was becoming resentful of me, that she was being critical of me. I was playing out all these scripts in my head because that's just normal. That just makes sense to me. She's probably thinking all those because I'm just laying in bed being lazy because I should be able to get up and help. So I'd get up and I'd do the dishes. And she would get mad at me. She'd get really mad at me and say, get back in bed. I, I, I'm doing okay. I don't need your help. And I'd go sit in bed for an hour or two, and then I'd hear the kids squabbling, and, you know, I'd have to get up and help her again. In all of my desire to care for my wife, to help her, to be a servant, to do all of these things, so I thought, you know what message she was actually receiving? She is incapable. I believe that she's not capable of doing all of this, and so I have to come rescue her. Talk about a frustrating kind of conflicting message here, because my intention is to be servant-like, 
And she's going, you just don't think I'm capable. I'm not good enough. Honey, no, I actually think you're good enough, but you don't, you don't think that, um, you know, I'm being lazy, and so I don't want you to think that about me, so I'm going to do this. Well, and it just goes round and round and round. My, the discomfort from being just still and present in bed and letting someone else do what needs to be done is probably one of the hardest things I've had to work through. And now I can lay in bed. But now, probably two or three times a day, I have to say, because I'm still working through it, honey, are you doing okay? Do you resent me for, for being in bed? Because I still, uh, isn't that terrible? But I still need that little reassurance because that insecurity has been so deeply rooted in me that I have to, how about this? I have to work to earn my approval. And if I'm not working, then guess what? I'm not being approved of. I am not good enough. And I can't rest in just the knowledge that my wife loves me unconditionally. Isn't it amazing how our family scripts, how our life scripts creep in and contain even the most basic of, of interactions? I'm trying, supposed to be laying in bed and all of this stuff's going on underneath. Because now, when I am trying to help out and do all those things, her script is, you know, she never feels good enough, and I'm just confirming all those things in her, which now leads to conflict and, and, and fights, and it's just really great, because I'm just trying to do the dishes. That's all I'm trying to do. And it turns messy. Being honest instead of being, I'm sorry, being nice instead of being honest is a way for people to avoid negative emotions. That's me. Um, people pleasing is based in the fear of rejection, the fear of loss of the other person's approval, or feeling lonely, isolated, and insecure. <sighs> people pleasers are addicted to approval. Isn't that terrible again? People pleasers, people pleasers are addicted to approval. If we don't get it, we somehow feel bad. And any addiction is what? Addict, I don't care what it is. It's about mood alteration. I don't want to feel certain things, so I know if I go to this behavior or this experience or this substance, I will change my mood. So if I'm already feeling uncomfortable, if I do something to seek someone's approval, then I got my fix. Because people don't get approval all the time, people pleasers continue their nice behavior until they get the approval they seek. The fact that it doesn't come often is what keeps them so addicted. It's called a covert contract. The best way to describe a covert contract is this. I lean over to my wife and I say, honey, I love you. And I say that with the expectation of what she's going to say back. Isn't that nice? I got what I'm seeking. And so I'm going to do something for her with an expectation that she's going to respond or reciprocate with what I'm hoping for. Covert contracts. Problem is when you start to rely on covert contracts, people don't know they're signing up for a contract. <laughs> and when they don't follow through, you, lead, you get frustrated. It leads to anger, resentment, disappointment, all of those things. That's passive aggressive, kind of summed up in a nutshell. I'm just going to do all these things, and I expect your behavior. I expect you to respond in certain ways. And if you don't, then I'm going to make sure that you know I'm displeased. But I'm never going to really tell you directly. 
I'm just going to make my displeasure known. Passive aggressive is messy. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, one second, I'll get you there. What do we do about this? How do we handle people pleasing? How do we move through that? I want you to practice a new kind of kindness. It's called honesty. And this can get messy again. <laughs> You're out on the date. It's, it's the date where you're not going out to dinner, you're going over to her place for the first time because she's going to make you this very nice meal. And she's not much of a cook, shall we say. What do you do? <laughs> Is there a, any win situation there? Uh, do you say, I, I love the meal, thank you very much, as you take the napkin full of food and you, you know, stick it in your pocket and you vow never again to, you know, have dinner at her house? Or do you say, I really, really appreciate the effort that was really nice, didn't like it, didn't, wasn't my favorite, but I sure like you. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> You might find out the character and quality of the relationship right there based upon the meal, huh? Because if she can't handle honesty, here's the hard question. If she can't handle you being honest, how much further do you want to carry the relationship? Because there might be other important things that you really do want to be honest. And if she doesn't, again, just a random sample, probably never happened to any of you, but um, a new kind of kindness, honesty. Um, it's just a million different examples that we can play through. Is that making sense? Um, this might be new information for some of you in the room. If you haven't heard this before, I am glad to be the first person to tell you this. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is okay to disappoint people that might not mean that you are a bad person. It might mean that your needs or desires or interests don't align with what their needs or desires or interest is. The controlling person tries to control everyone else's needs and desires to align with theirs. The people pleaser tries to conform all of the, their own behaviors to meet everyone else's needs. They're the chameleon. They're the person who never really knows who they are because they're so busy trying to align themselves or please everybody else. That making sense? The next one. Boink. Be preemptive. As I worked through some of my difficulty disappointing people, um, it's painful. When my wife and I had to move out of a two-story house that we had rented and she was seven months pregnant and we had spent two, three, four weeks packing up the house, everything's in boxes for moving day, Saturday. Most moving days look like you call up all your buddies, you rent the truck and pizza, they show up, lots of hands make light work, 
you move it into the truck, you drive over there, you have pizza, and then you unload everything, and then you spend the next three or four weeks unpacking everything in the boxes. Well, when your story gets in the way, it causes pain for yourself and for others. We had the boxes packed, I had the truck rented, and I had my best friend Bill coming over. Nine o'clock he shows up and asks the question, where's everybody else? Ladies and gentlemen, I couldn't ask anybody else. I knew everyone else was gonna be busy and so I just wouldn't ask. I wouldn't ask any of my other friends because why would they wanna come help me? They got other things to do. So I said, Bill, I don't have anybody else. It's you, me, and my seven-month pregnant wife. <laughs> How good of a husband am I right there? I'm not winning any trophies at that moment. And he looks at me and he goes, Paul, 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 Paul. Uh. Bill is very close to my heart. We've known each other for 15, 17 years now. So it's nice to be known by someone else, by the way. He jumps on the phone and in half an hour, he calls not only our mutual friends, but guys I don't even know. And they show up and we got six, seven guys and we get the house moved. And I felt about that big because my stuff, my story was getting in the way of just practical living. I was gonna make my seven month pregnant wife carry boxes downstairs. My story was starting to hurt other people. And so after that move, a couple days later, I sat down with Bill and said, Bill, I have got to get over this. I've known you for eight, nine, 10 years at that time, and I'm still scared to even ask you for help because I'm afraid you're not gonna like me, it's gonna be inconveniencing for you. I can't be an inconvenience. I have got to work through this. Is it okay if I call you and ask you for help? Will you still like me? I had to be preemptive. I had to have that conversation and set out a, a context to work through it with him. And he says, yeah, Paul, I think our, our friendship will probably last if you call up and ask for help. Gaining his permission made it easier, but not super easy, the next time I needed to, you know, borrow his truck. Still had that knot in my stomach, still had that, he's not going to like me if I inconvenience him. Call him up, Bill, can I borrow your truck? I need to do this. Yep, Paul, you can. Pretty soon he had fun with it. You know, I'd call him up, hey, Bill, can I? You know, Paul, that's probably, that's probably the end of our friendship right there. You need to borrow my truck. That's it. We're done, okay? He starts mocking me through it and all of those things. And, you know, he's having a good time. He helped redeem this part of my life because I couldn't disappoint. That point, you know, just before this one, I didn't know it was okay to disappoint people. I didn't know it was okay to do some of that. I didn't know it's okay to ask and inconvenience people. He helped me work through that. Now, it is much easier for me to disappoint people. I know where I begin and they end. I, I don't tend to say no for other people. I ask and then trust that they will be responsible for their own behavior and decision making and let them say yes or no. And if it's inconvenient for them, whose fault is that? If they say yes, theirs, and let them work through it instead of me working through it for them. Yeah. So what about the part about them saying no? I can't help you. Yeah. How crushed are you then? Yeah. I mean, that's really. Actually, I'm not because it's not ambiguous anymore. Remember that whole ambiguous thing? I don't know. I don't. Do they? Don't they? I just don't know. I at least have a solid no. I can't help you. 
And it hasn't happened yet where someone says, by the way, because you asked me to do this, that's it, we're done. Right. It just has never happened. No yeah. The scripts that play in my head, the scripts that play through my story is just like, I catastrophize these whole situations because I need to ask someone for a ride or I need, you know, need some help doing whatever. It just doesn't work out. Be preemptive. Ask if you can set those boundaries. Ask if you can work through those things. Hans. When your friend um, made all these calls, yeah. what would the cost have been to be grateful that God was so generous? Or was that even a thought? Uh, I'm not sure I'm tracking with you. Well, you, you, you were saying, were, did you feel you grateful small. when everybody came? Correct. You did feel grateful. Oh, I did feel grateful, but I also felt insecure and bad because here's my buddy who had to do something for me that I should have manned up and done myself. Yeah, he's, he's manning up. And I'm the little girl who can't make the phone calls. Yeah. Um, isn't it weird how you can have conflicting emotions all at the same time? I was grateful and feeling really insecure. <laughs> kind of weird. Um, so be preemptive. Um, finally, if you haven't heard about this book yet, primarily this is for um, the men in the group. It's called No More Mr. Nice Guy. It's a book I've recently come across, and it is the bomb. Um, if you want a description of how men can have what I would say appropriate boundaries where they can learn to serve not out of guilt or obligation or in, in seeking approval, but they can serve out of authentic selflessness. Does that make sense? If men are, are trying to be the nice guy to get all these things that they want, they're creating covert contracts all the time, they're building all these kind of behind the scenes things going on, and it's still not getting them what they want, it leads to primarily two main things the book identifies. Anger, because if men are not getting what they want by being nice, they get really, really angry internally. That can lead to, actually, definition of depression is anger turned inward. So those men tend to get both um, depressed and angry. And they also wrestle with sexual problems. Just kind of the, the mixture of how it plays out. Um, just as a disclaimer, it is not a Christian book. There are some things that might challenge some of your belief systems in that. And um, again, I didn't write it. He's responsible for it, not me. I don't have to do that. But I think that 90% of it is not only applicable, um, it is um, significant enough that it would be time well spent if you try to get the love and the approval you need by being the you know, Johnny on the spot, Mr. Nice Guy kind of approach. All right? I haven't found the really good solid book for ladies yet around this whole issue. I'm sorry. If you have it, if you know that book, you know, email it, send me, send me the information so I can put that on my resource list. But men specifically, wives, girlfriends, fiancés, partners, um, if, you wanna, if you're married to a guy like that, read it as well. You will be amazed. I'm probably going to be starting a group um, in September for men. Uh, working through some of the stuff in this book. Um, probably going to happen. Here? No. I don't know where yet. Every guy that I've recommended it to who has read it um, says, where's their group? Because I want to work through this together. Oh, by the way, the other thing, they got anger, sexual problems, and they have really... Um, 
poor relationships with other men. Those are kind of the, the three, mm. three signs of a nice guy. So, mm. like I said, it's pretty dead on, pretty solid. Questions at all about any of that? That would be control. Puh. Can you imagine I packed all this into four weeks? I don't know how I did that. It was smoking. All right, no questions on control at all? Then let's go to risk. Huh. Risk. Security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Spoken by someone who might know a little thing or two about difficult life circumstances. Right? Helen Keller. We're going to just burn through these. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one lesser traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Risk is taking the step knowing you might get hurt. We live in a world of potential harm. And a very common strategy for people who have been hurt before is to say, I am not going to step out into that world again because I already know what happens. So I'm going to build the walls and I'm going to keep them nice and high. And ladies and gentlemen, it works. You stay safe. It really does. But your world is very small and you don't get to experience much of it at all. And you miss out on what I think we are called to do. It's hard to build relationships in those places. It's hard to grow in those places. It's hard to change in those places. Only those who dare to fail greatly can ever achieve greatly. You gotta try. You gotta put yourself out there. Often the difference between a successful person and a failure is not one has better abilities or ideas, but the courage that one has to bet on one's ideas, to take a calculated risk, and to act. Risk cannot be theoretical. Right. It cannot stay in your head. It is predisposed to behavior. It is predisposed to action. You can't learn this in a book. I'm sorry. You can't learn this from a lecture even though I wish that I could somehow teach you how to risk. That's why we're going through a lot of quotes right now, <laughs> because there isn't really an easy step-by-step. -step. If I could give you the best step-by-step, -step, it's three words, and to act. You've got to try, because if you don't try, then you technically aren't risking anything. Who is I have no idea, <laughs> but apparently, Pretty smart person. Anyone know? Risky. Yeah. I don't know. I'd like you to take calculated risks. That is quite different from being rash. Many of you, if you've had a difficult past, you might have been engaged with in what's called risky behavior. This is not what we're talking about. 
there is healthy risk and there is unhealthy risk. We're going to talk a little bit about that in section four. But we have to risk. We can't live with a guaranteed amount of safety forever. We have to risk at some point. Yes, taking risk is inherently failure prone. Otherwise, it would be called sure thing taking. <laughs> it, John, that's him. Uh, people who don't take risks generally make about two big mistakes a year. People who do take risks generally make about two big mistakes a year. We really can't avoid it. It's the world we live in. It's the humanity. It's the fallen nature of the world right now. So get out in it and play. See what happens. Ah, finally, if a man isn't willing to take some risks for his opinions, either his opinions are no good or he's no good. Do you really believe the things about yourself that you're trying to believe? And are you willing to put some action behind it? This is why, ladies and gentlemen, we break into small groups for 10 minutes before the class because I want you to risk. You will learn things. You will create muscle memory. You will grow and change in it. Do you actually believe that who you want to become is worthwhile and is willing to put action behind it? Because if you don't, then either examine who you want to become or examine what's in the way. What are you trying to hold on to that you don't want to risk, that you don't want to lose? What's so precious that you can't lose it? Yeah? I, have a, I, I don't know what I'm thinking here, but if you just turn that quote around a little bit, how, what would you say to the person that would say, my opinions are no good, and I'm no good, therefore I'm not willing to take some risks? I mean, that's where a lot of, that's where I feel I'm at. Yep. So you have to examine, are you believing truth or are you believing a lie? Go back to the last week. That was the answer. Is it? Oh, man. <laughs> that was the answer right there. Your whole world would have been different. <sighs> Failure101.org, hit play. Okay. You'll be able to listen to it. And that actually, you've defined the recipe really, really well. If we do believe that our opinions don't matter, and if we do believe that we do, don't matter, then how likely are we to take actions on that? We have to change the self-concept. We have to change the belief primarily. I'm not going to say first, because I think you do them congruently. If you start to change the belief and take a risk based on that, if you find out you have success, that it actually works out, then it will start to build on the, that pyramid that we've shown a couple times here of, hey, I have some sort of success. That gives me some level of self-confidence. And that self-confidence will now start to change the belief system. So it's hard to say one is, is truly before the other, but I'd say the primary thing is you have to challenge the belief system. Are you truly worthless or lazy or not wanted or no good or whatever those belief systems are? Well, yeah, and I, I understand that, but I think you know, a person could easily put the second phrase of that first because of their past experiences and failures, and that's what they're looking at. They're looking at these 
past mistakes and these past nothings, and they're going, is my belief system actually inaccurate here? Right. <laughs> Where are my trophies, you know? Yep. <laughs> and what would that be called? I don't know. I wasn't here last week. Oh, help them out. If you believe that you are no good because of all of the bad things that are happening, that's called what? Shame. And I want you to be able to identify the behaviors as the behavior didn't work, but I still somehow have intrinsic value. That's the difference between shame and guilt again. That's why it's week two, because it's such an important concept. Well, yeah. What if you don't believe you have intrinsic value? Like, how do you possibly change that? It's not like a switch you turn on. No, it isn't. It <laughs> isn't. Like, people tell you, like, what you believe isn't true. Well, yeah. guess what? I do believe yeah. it's true. Yeah. I said, and you're just being paid to say that, so the mind says. I wish I could give you a, here's the magic bullet, and it makes it all better. I think we're more complex than that. I think that we have to work and struggle and be refined. And it's hard to find the motivation to do that if you believe that you are worthless and intrinsically not valuable. I, I, I understand the dilemma. The easiest steps to take in doing that would be remove yourself from the people who are confirming those beliefs about you and find other people who might see you differently. It's the client who has made very poor sexual choices all through her adolescence and adult life so far. Um, and has this script playing over in her head, my behaviors confirm that I am not good, not worth, not worth anything, all of those things. And as I sit with her, I help her understand that if we look at the lies that she believed, which actually fed into the behaviors, no wonder she was doing the behaviors because the lies that she believed, when we start to challenge those beliefs, she can start to see her behaviors as, oh, that makes sense, but it was a lie, and I can start to grant myself forgiveness for the behavior, and I get the sacred privilege of introducing a new self-concept to her and helping her see herself as who she really is. Because she's in my office week after week after week, doing hard work, being vulnerable, exposing herself in ways that she's never done before. Does that not speak to her character? Does that not speak to who she truly is? And I get the privilege of reminding her of that week after week after week. And she's not perfect, and she doesn't go through it you know, perfectly. She still makes mistakes and still wrestles with it. But the lies that she believed are being challenged. It takes time. I wish I had, I, believe me, as a counselor, every day I go, I just wish I could say the thing that would make this person feel better. I've learned that I can't control other people. <laughs> Disappointing as a counselor, by the way, because lots of counselors like to do that. I just want to fix everybody. We can't do that. So instead, I get to walk alongside with her as she wrestles through that herself. More bad news, there's no guarantee she might end up believing the lies for the rest of her life. She might 
start believing the new stuff in her life. I, I, I can't promise anything. But I can promise her that we'll have a safe environment to wrestle through it. And as she gains more success in those things, she tends to make better and better choices and starts to see herself very differently. I was just going to make a comment that when I've gone to that place where I inherently believe that I'm all tapped out, that the thing that gets me out of that the greatest is being of service with others and not as a people pleaser, but truly being with them. Yeah. And assisting. Yeah. And, you know, standing by people. And then together, you know, I can move out of that dark place. Yeah, absolutely. If I could... If I could come as close to the silver bullet, the magic, magic pill as I could, that would tend to be a feelings problem. I don't feel valuable. I don't feel intrinsically worthwhile. And you can't fix a feeling problem by thinking your way out of it. It just doesn't work. You have to work on the feelings. You have to use feelings to move through a feeling problem. You have to use thinking to fix thinking errors. You can't trade them both, all right? So you need to do the things that will address the feelings component of it, and you have to step into what I would probably argue is an experiential place. Just talking about it and just thinking about it again tends not to bring a lot of movement in there. You have to find some place of experiencing unconditional love, acceptance, approval that starts to challenge these lies. So you would things that reinforce negative opinions about ourselves, but we can also kind of harness that in the opposite way. Find out what, what one, one or a few things that we think are, are positive and find the things that reinforce those. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And hanging on to those. Okay, if you're a Christian, you believe in God, you believe in Jesus, then doesn't it make sense that you believe what God says is true about you? Well, what I think she's saying is we have we have these truths, we have these these promises in Scripture, absolutely. And if we don't live according to that, then we are in essence calling God a liar because we're not we're not owning those things, right? Is that what I'm hearing? Right. Yeah. I think she's saying too the importance of remembering that. Yep. 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 And I and I believe that that is the root for truth. We have to have some source of unshakable truth. The dilemma is I think that our struggles still get in the way of being able to own some of that. That's the that's the wrestling part of our working out our salvation piece. And so I wish it was as easy as just Again, if, if telling people is all it took, I would have the smartest kids in the world because I tell them all the time, just do it this way and you'll be okay. But telling people things isn't the best way to teach them at times. W letting my children learn experientially, working that out, all of those things, that's the, mod the best model for learning. So I, I absolutely agree with you. The, the scripture, our relationship with Christ is the source of that truth. Being able to own that truth is the wrestling that we do within our Christian walk.
good questions. Very, very good questions. Yeah. So you would disagree with the common uh, adage, I guess, in many twelve subcircles, take the action, the feelings will follow. No, actually, I agree with it. But again, it's the it's what I was talking about over here. You have it's congruent. You have to live according to truth, gain success in that, which now makes it easier to believe the truth. But primarily, you have to even consider that the truth is is viable. So there's a primary step, but those are congruent. I don't think one trumps the other. It's, it's, a, it's a joint venture. Say that again. Yep, exactly. Exactly. You can't fix just one leg on a three-legged stool. You got to fix them all. All right. We are going to have to blaze here. Section three, trust. Defining trust, it's a little tricky. Anyone want to give it a shot real fast? How would you define what trust is? We all know it when we see it, but how would you define it? Yeah? Ooh. How attached to the word unconditional are you? Okay. A belief in something. Okay. Is that you just waving at me? Nice to see you. Yeah. Feeling like it's safe to be vulnerable. Ooh, that's pretty good. Um, I still think there's another component of that that we're going to put into there. Yeah. Uh, producing yourself in care of someone or something, not being completely sure of the outcome. Wow, that's pretty close. There's an action, there's, a, there's an action piece that's, a, that's a associated with trust as well. So I think that you're halfway there. We need the action piece to go along with it. We're going to, again, I got the PowerPoint, an individual's belief in and willingness to act on the basis of the words, actions, and decisions of another. We have to put action. We can't just say we trust someone, you know. I trust you but I'm not going to put myself in any vulnerabilities place with you. Um, and we're going to trust that their words, action, or decisions are going to work out well for us. In essence, that's what trust is. <coughs> Back to the first section. Control is fear-based. I'm afraid, and that's why I got to make sure my environment around me is safe. Trust is vulnerability-based. I am going to purposely, by choice, not be in control of your actions or decisions. And I'm going to hope it works out best. Why in the world would anyone <laughs> trust? Because that's sketchy. That's real sketchy. That's why when trust is broken, it's so devastating is because it has attacked that vulnerability piece of us. That's why it's so hard to trust again. That's why trust can be lost instantaneously and takes so long to build up. Because it only takes once for us to doubt that we'll be taken care of again. Well, isn't, isn't that the component? I'm sorry, what's your name? 
Priscilla. Priscilla, when I mean you brought it back to you know the whole being Christian, being Christianity, which is is trust based. Yeah. Um, Faith. Future trust based, but as damaged, abused, broken, abused children and adults, isn't that the crux of it? Because you your your trust somewhere along the line trust was broken. And depending on when that happened, I mean there's the battle and there's the work out your salvation and fear and trembling. Yeah. Is that okay, yeah, there you have it, I can read it. But it's not just behavior modification. Yeah. You know, it's not, oh, I get a recipe card out and you know Add eggs, stir, whip three minutes, boom, you got a cake. No, you know, it's... Heart modification. You know, it's a heart change. Yeah. It's not just, and there it is, because as a child, yeah. when you're abused, yeah. or an adult, your trust has been broken by someone who has a, a, that place, and there you go. Yeah. Work it. Yeah. God, I mean, man, I wish there was a magic pill. This is why trust being broken at any stage is so devastating. Because what it causes us to do is move back to that control place. Again, remember the beginning of the night when things fail, whether we make our own failures or other people's fail us, it often leads back to that control. Because if I, we can't go through life without trust. That's the rub. Each one of you, whether you know it or not, has been trusting the entire night. You're sitting in the chairs. And I don't think I saw any of you come up and go, all right, let's see. I think that's going to hold. I'm going to inspect all the screws and everything like that. I'm going to make sure that it's not going to fall. Maybe you did, but maybe you didn't. We live with trust all the time. And for someone who had a chair break on them, if they have to go through every chair and inspect it, if they got to go through every car and inspect it, if they got to go through every relationship and inspect it and appraise it, and all that, and they go to more control and more control and more control. Do you see how their world gets smaller and smaller and smaller? And they have very little freedom because they have to confirm everything. This is one of the components that people who have been wounded in the past, this is what their world looks like. This is why you end up with control freaks because they have to keep themselves safe. That's why we can look at them with compassionate eyes now because we know that they are dealing with fear, not with just being annoying. The, <laughs> the, the root is in a different place. Yeah. I guess I don't see trust as an either or thing, 100% or zero. I think there's of it. Yep. And I may trust the same person for very different things. I may trust them in one area, but no, I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to hand over my credit card. Yes. <laughs> Trust does not mean, um, uh, well, I'll use the word reconciliation. You might, if trust has been broken, it doesn't mean that you trust them by being irresponsible with things that they can hurt you again. They, the natural consequences of some of that might mean there are healthy boundaries, parameters that is going to affect that relationship. Um, so... We're not talking, that's two di very, very different things. <sighs> Hard to see that. Does anyone know what that is? Anyone know what kind of car that is? Very nice. 
That's a Beamer. That's actually a new BMW called a Gina. It's an acronym. I can't tell you what it stands for. But the car changes shape. It's the coolest car in the world. If you look at this, it's not a metal skin. It's a fabric skin. And as the doors open up, the skin just bends, just like our skin here. Um, the, the, the lights, the video, look up BMW Gina on YouTube. The lights, <laughs> they blink, okay? They just whoop, they open up like that. And it looks like eyeballs. It's freaky. The, the fenders here, these things here, are, are bars inside the frame, and they move. So the car becomes more aerodynamic as it moves along. I talk, BMW is the ultimate driving machine. It's just a cool car, isn't it? But the car got me thinking. If I was a car designer, if your car's like mine, it's been in the parking lot and been hit by the, 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 the shopping cart or it's got the rock chip in it. If I was a car designer and I wanted my car to look good and the technology existed, what, what, what would I design into the car's skin? Flexibility. Not only flexibility, but what? Self-healing. Self can you imagine that? I can go park, dent in my car. I come out, oh, there's a dent in my car. No biggie. I know that in a month it's going to grow back out. Now, how freaky would that be? Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that just be amazing? We'd have great looking cars all the time and all that. We are built that way by our creator. If we knew our car would heal, I'd go off-roading all the time. Let's just take this buddy out and see what it can do. Let's go bouncing around because if it gets dinged, if it gets chipped, it's just going to grow back out. I don't have to worry about fixing it. Our creator made that in us. When we get damaged, we don't stay damaged. We heal. Isn't that a remarkable gift of our God and our creator? Because we heal... We are encouraged, we are designed to live with freedom, to go try things, to risk over and over again, to not live in our small world anymore. He wants us to know that if we get damaged, that we will heal again, not only physically, our hearts want to heal our brains, our soul wants to heal. One of the definitions of trauma is when there is something in the way that is preventing our mind, our emotions from getting back to a state of equilibrium. Um, some, again, process I talked about EMDR kind of removes those splinters, the shrapnel from the wound, and then our body, our minds heal naturally. Isn't that just an amazing gift? Why don't we live according to that? Yes, we have scars. We have memories of those things. I got a nice scar in my hand from a um, washing machine that it won as I was trying to fix it. And I remember it, but the wound isn't open anymore. I remember it, but it doesn't interfere with my hand. I, have, I can go back to living the way I did. While it's hurt, yes, it's in the way. I got to take care of my hand a little bit, but only for a season. And then we change and then we grow, and then we 
are free again. Isn't he amazing? In fact, I would make an argument that one of the really, really big questions lots of people ask is why does God let bad things happen to good people? What if this was an answer to that? Maybe not the only answer, but what if it is he doesn't actually try to stop us from being hurt. Instead, he says, I know you're going to be hurt. And because of that, I haven't left you helpless. I've taken care of you way ahead of time. And you will heal. And that's his love for us. A little perspective shift, possibly. Yes? Yeah. Wouldn't there still be a risk you could just total it? Possibly. Uh-huh. And then it wouldn't, is, is there a point where it's like too much? We die. Yes. That's the reality. Um, I don't think that we can be irresponsible. I still think that we need to have responsibility in that. But I think that our world is broader. We don't have to drive around, I hope my car doesn't get hit, I hope my car doesn't get hit, I hope my car doesn't get hit. We can go, I'm just going to go for a drive and enjoy the view. Because if something happens, I know I'll be okay. So the responsibility still plays into that, for sure. But it's about the freedom that we have with that. Yeah. We, too, can heal. I just wrote this down. We heal, but in that healing process, it is risky. It's risky, and it involves trust. So, and it involves trusting someone other than ourselves, which is idolatry, isn't it? How do you mean? Well, if I'm not, I think we trust somebody. I mean, we, ultimately, you're trusting something or someone, or you're trusting some belief system. Okay potentially that is fallible that you have not allowed to heal and is not that a form of idolatry i'm going to trust myself more than god that's idolatry correct i'm going to i'm going to trust um that if i do a b and c all the time and make everybody happy that that's going to work that's idolatry yep yep putting something else in god's place yep and and, and so to heal it involves risk, which means at some point you're just going to have to get off your butt and trust. <laughs> that action again. Yeah. Action. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just, yeah. yeah. I mean, Rebecca sat on a pile of, I got, of idols. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she did. Going, yeah. Could you um, describe me the difference or likeness or relationship between trust and faith? Because I tend to be able to interchange those things. I think there's some distinctions about how you would describe that. Um, in all reality right now, I can't think of a, a distinguishing factor between the two. I, I, I'm not sure that, I think I would use them interchangeably as well. Um, can anyone else, you know? what you're trusting in, right. trust is the act of, right. you have to have trust to have faith, right. I don't know. So faith is usually a, a belief in something you have, actually have no evidence of, whereas by your definition, trust 
you actually have seen something that results in your trust. Mm-hmm. Like based on somebody's actions, you decide you're going to trust them based on what you had on the board, whereas faith is belief without. Well, maybe. Um, we have to, again, we have to trust lots of things. You've got to trust the, car, the, the chair sitting in. You've got to trust that the other drivers on the road who you've never seen before are going to stay in their lane. You've got to trust that the government's you know, taking care of us, however you land on that. Um, lots of things that we have to trust in that maybe we don't see. So I don't know. I haven't thought it out that far, maybe. Yeah, yeah, very well could be. I don't know if I've thought it out that far to make that distinction. It's a good question, though. Come up with an answer and let me know next week. That'd be really great. And then I'll totally rip it off and say it was mine so the next time I present this. Yes? Well, it was just on that. I could write it next week. But I guess um, faith, like Abraham was considered righteous by his faith. So right. So that would be the pure essence of what faith was first came out of. Mm-hmm. And Abraham... Yeah. Yeah. One more fallible guy out there (laughs) screwing up. Man, oh man. Um, It's nine o'clock. I'm going to honor your time. One last thing. We'll kind of skip the rest. Um, Again, that's all the good stuff that would have solved all your problems, but keep working it out. When it comes to risk and trust and control, I'm going to end on bad news tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, you can live the most perfect life. You can have made the best choices. You can have been the most responsible, the most kind, the most compassionate, the most righteous life in the world and still end up hurt. Because there are other people out there who are fallible. And they're the people who run into your car. They're the people who... make poor choices and you end up living with the consequences of that. My wife and I have a friend, um, it's actually a a couple, uh, about a month and a half ago their daughter went out to check the mail in Damascus and coming back across the street she was hit by a suburban neighbor lady. No malice no evil intended and their life is forever changed their daughters in the hospital still and their world is very different good christian folks worked at church worked in the ministry with them wonderful people this is the second serious car accident in their family I wish I could promise you that the world is a safe place, but I can't. What I can promise you is that if we get hurt, we heal. Joy is healing in the hospital right now. Her creator has made her miraculously. Her parents' hearts will heal so that the next time Mom has to let one of the kids to go check the mail again. She doesn't sit in fear anymore. 
we heal. I want you to hear that. I want you to know that. I want you to not forget that. So it might not be bad news that we end on. It might be good news. How would I pray for us again? And then we're going to let you go. Father, I don't know the hearts of each person here, but I do know that the world we live in is painful and hurtful at times. Thank you for being a good God, and thank you for, for being so wise in the way that you create us. And thank you for wanting to know us and not forget us. Lord, I would ask that in the midst of the struggles of us trying to live out that life, that we will be able to keep that in mind, that we will be able to live according to that truth and not the lies that we've been told our whole life. Thank you that you're a good God. And in your name, amen.